All right, good morning, everyone. Child, I am yours, and now you 
mind Now love your brother Just as I, just as I loved you Forgive, don't hurt each other Be kind and tender-hearted Come and help each other This is the love of God child, the apple of my eye. I gave you my all when I sacrificed my son. Walk in my love and show the world your mind. Show the world your mind. Show the world your mind. Cause you're Okay, I'll be right back when we hang up the guitar. All right, good morning again. Good morning. I'm going to try something here a little bit. My headphones here. Maybe I'll, I'll teach with them on. All right, uh, I think I might do that. I don't know why I haven't done that before. I have these are monitors I have in my ear, so it helps you to hear yourself, especially when you're singing. And anyways, so plus I'm hearing the audio what goes out on, on, the, uh, on the broadcast. So anyway, so uh, good morning again to all of you. And if you could turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we'll start there. And that song I just uh, played for you is a song I wrote when I was at my first church plant in, in Prairie View uh, Christian Church in uh, Iowa. It was in Norway, Iowa. And um, so th that I chose that song this morning. I tried to uh, use, when I sing a song, I try to have it fit to my message or somehow, some way. It, it, it works with the message. And uh, so this one actually fits really good with the message today. Because we're gonna, today we're going to be noting, continuing our introduction of the Ephesian epistle. And we've, we're going to note the purpose and some major, begin to start uh, to note some major themes as well with regards to this epistle. So the first thing we're going to be doing this morning is looking at the purpose, which is caused a lot of uh, consternation for a lot of expositors. very difficult to discern what is or determine what was the, the, the purpose for this letter. So I, I believe I, 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 I have it right, and there's other people like uh, that have expositors that they're, they're in the ballpark where, where I'm in, and, uh, and others have different ideas. But we're going to try to nail that down today, and again, we'll, we'll be starting looking at some major themes as well uh, to this epistle, and uh, that will... Uh, Continue on Tuesday. We'll be looking at some more major themes, and then we'll be looking at grace and peace, which are two major themes uh, right out of the gate in Ephesians, and uh, that that'll finish off our introduction. So, uh, just also a reminder: the first Saturday of each month, we observe the Lord's Supper, and that's what we'll be doing today. So, I have um, 
the elements in front of me at this time. So if you want to get those, you can get those if you haven't already. Um, and then we'll observe the Lord's table, the communion service at the end of this lesson. And, uh, and I'll sing a song related to that, uh, the Lord's Supper as well. I've written about four that are uh, there are ones I like to use for the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of I actually wrote deliberately for the Lord's Supper, like uh, remember him. But uh, so that will be, um, so we'll be, that's what, I, what we're going to do today as we uh, continue our study of uh, the introduction for the Ephesian epistle. It's an eight-part series, and we'll f wrap it up this Thursday, and then we'll get into our verse-by-verse verse exposition of this great letter, which I'm, I'm, I'm working on. Uh, as after the, we this broadcast, I'll be I'll be going back, uh, looking at uh, beginning to study Ephesians one eighteen. I was on that verse pretty much a lot of the good portion uh, yesterday afternoon and morning, and just because uh, it's got some really difficult syntax in the thing, but I think I got it. I think I, I think I got. I have to, uh, it's a lot of fun. I love I love doing that. I love those kind of difficulties. Um, it's a lot of fun because once you, you get, it's wrestling with the text, but once you get through it, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, anyways, how to describe it. Also, just another reminder, we have, um, if you know, some of you might be looking, going to Wenstrom Bible Ministry, wenstrom.org, and you're getting some kind of uh, message there. Um, there's a, on that, that message, the error message, we have to renew the certificate. <laughs> Titus, who runs, who's the, runs the, uh, uh, the website for me for years now uh, designed that actually. Um, he does a fantastic job, and so we have to just renew the certificate. So he told me it should be done by it should be all set today. The website. So if it hasn't, I apologize, but uh, we'll get that up and going again. But you can get to it anyways, even though you have that error message or whatever it says. I forget what it says. Um, but anyways, all you have to do is click on advanced, and then from there you'll see a link at the very bottom or at the bottom of the whole message. And it says continue to wenstrom.org click that link and you'll go right into uh, the website and uh, just like usual. But uh, hopefully we won't have to go through all that rigmarole. But, uh, it'll just be, uh, maybe hopefully we'll have it, we'll be back up in the afternoon. So keep that in prayer. Titus does a great job and, uh, and uh, he's done a, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, I'm out here teaching the word of God and I got these broadcasts, but if it wasn't for guys like him, what he's a major player and uh, you know, this stuff would never get out. So he's, He's very unsung, always has been, and and, and um, he's a good friend. More ways than people ever know. He was a, he is a great friend, has been a great friend. So, and so is his wife Jody, and my buddy Cheyenne, <laughs> and so uh, their daughter. So uh, let's take a let's take that moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, to determine if we're in fellowship with God, because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain this fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3, 16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So, if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting to you, do it. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for the grace, the faith, the salvation of your work on our behalf in eternity past, electing us and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of your Son, and electing and predestinating us to adoption as your sons. We thank you, Father, for that grace and love demonstrated in the past, and also we thank you for the personal work of your Son, Jesus Christ, which manifested your love for us, and uh, with his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at your right hand, which has solved our problem with eternal condemnation, uh, enslavement to sin and Satan and his cosmic system, spiritual and physical death, personal sins, condemnation from the law. We also thank of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, from regeneration to resurrection, and in particular uh, through the baptism of the Spirit, identifying us with your Son, Jesus Christ, and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand, which gives us the victory over sin and Satan as cosmic system positionally and in a perfective sense when we're a resurrection body and also experientially when we are in fellowship with you, Father, through the obedience to your word. We thank you for your almighty word. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit inspiring the human authors of scripture and our study of Ephesians, inspiring Paul to put down in writing with perfect, perfect accuracy your full and complete counsel and connected thought to mankind with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Help me to communicate this subject today with regards to the purpose of Ephesians and some of the major themes that are in this letter that will help us to understand and, and make application. By the power of the Spirit, help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction, humble, and bring forth your full counsel today to your people so that they can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. I also pray that you would work mightily and powerfully through your children in the audience, whether they're live or through the recordings, help them to learn, understand, and apply, and to concentrate, and please break down any barriers that sin and Satan uh, might put up that would hinder that from happening. I also pray for the recordings, the, the video and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms. I pray that they would function properly and to protect them from the evil one and use them mightily, Father. So we pray for this service in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. All right, you should be at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We'll get there momentarily. And as I said before the opening prayer, we'll be looking at the purpose of this letter, which has caused a lot of difficulties for a lot of expositors, and also uh, begin to note some of the major themes of this Ephesian epistle. And, uh, and, and right off the bat, we'll be looking at um, unity, and which is a major theme, which is connected to the purpose, as we'll see, and also Jesus Christ. He's a major theme. Who he is in this, is, he's a major player in this book. Paul talks about him all over the place, almost like in every verse, it seems like. So, uh, so this is a very Christocentric book, as you'd expect with Paul. So uh, tonight, or today, I should say tonight, well, should, this morning, and uh, this morning we're going to be uh, noting again. I said the purpose of the major themes of this Ephesian epistle. Now, related to the purpose, uh, though Paul never mentions any specific problem or problems taking place within the Christian community in this letter, it can be inferred from the contents of this letter that Paul was concerned that the Christian community remained united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. And uh, so, as I said, that song that I sang at the beginning, it's really tied, it, it fits perfectly for our, our, our message today because, as we'll see, it, the, the, it was wanted them to stay united experientially, the Christian community, through the practice of the command to love one another. He wanted to reaffirm and help them to understand who they are in Christ in this letter. So that's, uh, so therefore that song was is basically about that. And 
and how it apply, how we're supposed to treat each other based upon what God has treat how God has treated us. So again, though Paul never mentions any specific problem or problems taking place within the Christian community in the Ephesian letter, it can be inferred from the contents of the letter that he was very concerned that the Christian community remain united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. Now, this is indicated, as we'll see, by the fact that Paul opens the practical application of his teaching and the first three chapters by commanding the recipients of the letter to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Ephesians 4.3, he says this. Now, this would all be accomplished by the recipients of this letter living in a manner worthy of their calling and by practicing humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance of one another through the practice of the command to love one another, which Paul instructs them to do in the first two verses of chapter 4. So therefore, unity is the first major overriding theme in the Ephesian epistle because this is the purpose of the letter. And uh, I remember years ago when I first got ordained, um, um, my pastor would let me sit in along with Jim and, uh, and, and teach, you know, some nights. And I remember... I did a, a study on unity and uh, it was pretty, I remember that distinctly and uh, I could do a lot better job on it now. Uh, but uh, it's kind of interesting. I just, just popped in my head that I did that years ago. But uh, this was one of the first things I ever taught about is unity, Christian unity. And so um, again, you know, so who's Paul? As we pointed out already in this introduction, you know, Paul is writing this from, Rome, it's during his first Roman imprisonment, which was between 60 and 62 AD, uh, the recipients of this letter, as we pointed out in detail, are not just the, the Christian community in Ephesus, but the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia. And those seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 7 would be some of those Christian communities that this letter was uh, directed to. So it's a circular letter, as we pointed out. Uh, there's uh, Many indications for that, as we pointed out, there's no personal greetings, which you would expect with a guy who's been spent three years there, and yet there's none. And then the prepositional phrase in Ephesus doesn't show up in the best in uh, uh, manuscripts, and uh, and uh, in, in, but yet it is in some manuscripts. But the best and the oldest, they don't have them. Uh, this prepositional phrase in Ephesus, and that's telling us, and then Martian saw a letter that was ex identical to what we call Ephesians today, but it was entitled to the Laodiceans. So all this it points to the fact that it was a circular letter. Like First John, it was a circular letter, not just directed to one Christian community, but many different Christian communities. In fact, First John wrote a circular letter. It was a circular letter directed for the, uh, for the Christian communities in the various provinces of the Roman Asia, uh, Roman, Roman province of Asia, just like Ephesians. So you had these, uh, and he's primarily writing to Gentile Christians. We know that from chapter two, as we'll see, and have saw in the, in, in the previous class. So they're Gentile Christians, but Paul was concerned that they stay unified experientially with the Jewish Christian community and, uh, and uh, do that through the practice of the command to love one another. And uh, so uh, this is, again, you know, Paul doesn't have, as I just pointed out to you, he doesn't have, there's no specific problem or problems that he seems, that he is uh, addressing in this letter. But if you look at the contents of the letter, it appears that he was concerned that the Christian, if you read, if you read it and you, you get the idea that, man, he, he's, it seems to be he's concerned that they stay united. And uh, again, this is indicated by the fact that Paul opens the practical application of his teaching in the first three chapters 
by commanding the recipients of the letter to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4.3. So as we pointed out, uh, this letter is easy to outline. Um, we saw that he follows the, the typical Greco-Roman letter pattern. Um, but here, he, you know, in Ephesians, he has this doxology that starts off after the personal greeting and identification of the, the recipients and the, and the author. Then you have this doxology in verses 3 through 14, which actually is the preface of the letter, which talks about these things. He, he develops these things later on. But the first three chapters are the, what we call the indicatives of the Christian faith. Uh, assertions, affirmations of who they are in Christ, the, the recipients of this letter. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, you have we call the imperatives, where now Paul's making application, wants them to make application of what who they are in Christ and live in a manner consistent with that. Very important. That's what God, that's really what God's trying to do when he's trying to form the character of Christ in our lives. This is who I made you to be, and this is who you are going to be in the future forever. But in the meantime, we need to go and experience this. And because we're sinners by na nature and practice, we have a volition, there's a devil, we're, we're not going to be perfect in our practice of the command of love one another, and we're not going to be perfect in staying in fellowship with God. So that's why we have to confess our sins, keep short accounts with God, and then do what he tells us to do. And uh, the more you grow spiritually, you'll spend less time out of fellowship than you and uh, than you would be when you were younger When you as a believer. You spend more time out of fellowship when you're a baby believer. So... This should that should change as the years go by. So again, again, though Paul never mentions any specific problem or problems taking place within the Christian community, in this letter, it can be inferred from the contents of the letter that he was concerned that the Christian community remain united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. And this is indicated again by the fact that Paul opens the practical application of his teaching in the first three chapters by commanding the recipients of the letter to maintain the unity of, and the bond of peace, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4.3. And this would be accomplished, as I said before as well, by living in a manner worthy of their calling. And by how you do this? By practicing humility, he says, and gentleness and patience and tolerance of one another through the practice of the command to love one another. And that, and which Paul instructs them to do in the first two verses of chapter 4. So therefore, unity is the first major overriding theme in, uh, in the Ephesian epistle because this is the purpose of the letter. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, and I'm reading from the Net Bible, I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, here's the manner, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now keep going because he speaks of unity in different areas. There's one body, the, the body of Christ, and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, uh, the Christian faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So again, Paul was concerned that the Christian community remain united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. And they were already unified in a positional sense, as I mentioned, through their union and identification with Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. So consequently, this set up the guarantee of being united in a perfective sense when they received their resurrection bodies at the rapture or resurrection of the church. So this letter talks a lot about our union and identification with Christ. And uh, so what that means is at the moment of our justification through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
the Father identified us with his Son in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, the right hand of the Father. That, the reason why he had to do that is because we're, at the moment of our justification, we were placed under the headship of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Prior to our justification through faith in Jesus, uh, we were under the first Adam and under a curse and under the wrath of God. We came out from the under the wrath of God at the moment of our justification. And Romans 8, 1 through 4 talks about this. And we have peace with God. So now, so God looks at his, his crucified, died, buried, raised, and seed with Christ. And so therefore, he wants us to, uh, these events in Jesus' life gave us deliverance over sin and Satan and his cosmic system. And so uh, God wants us to appropriate by faith our union identification with Christ and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. So the, the big chapters in the Bible about this are Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, both books we studied in detail, and this book, Ephesians. And there's other, other, other parts of Paul's writings, but those are the big chapters uh, Romans 6, Colossians 3, and when we get, uh, really the Ephesian epistle actually even, uh, goes up into, uh, shows uh, uh, the dynamics of that as well, and uh, as we'll see, but from the, from the, from the perspective of, the lo- of obeying the command to love one another. So this unity, this unity in a possessional sense is taught in the first three chapters of the Ephesian epistle. And this unity positionally, as I said before, in the past has set up the potential to experience this unity when interacting with each other. And that's accomplished again through obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ's command in John 15, 12 and 13, 34 to love one another as he has loved them. In fact, Paul makes a point of mentioning this unity in a positional sense in relation to the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians interaction with each other. And they would experience that which is true of them positionally through the practice of the command to love one another. So consequently, they would reflect the character and nature of the Trinity who are united eternally since this love is part of their character and nature. So uh, as I said before, uh, Paul makes a point of mentioning this unity in a positional sense in relation to the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians with each and their interaction with each other. So uh, look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And let's go to verse... 11. Now, in the previous class, we did the form and structure of this letter, so we actually went right through the epistle quickly. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse, as I said, by, as I said before, and, and, and very deliberately. And uh, so we, we, we noted this section as well. And so it appears that the recipients of this letter were primarily Gentile, because he addresses them as Gentiles. And then, uh, but he, he, he wants them to understand that they were far away from God, didn't have a covenant relationship with God like the Jews did. So he didn't want them, like in Romans, he didn't want them to get arrogant against the Jewish people and against the Jewish Christians. Uh, we Salvation is of the Jews, as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, and also, very important, uh, because we're going we're gonna to be noting um, the Lord's Supper at the end of class, and Jesus talks about his death is the basis for the new covenant. Uh, which is found in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, and other places. And two of the stipulations for the new covenant were forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. Now, Gentile Christians were not given the law or these covenants. The Jews were. Paul makes that clear in Romans 9, 1 through 5. And, uh, and the Old Testament does. The church was in existence 
and the Old Testament. In fact, we know that from Matthew 16, after Peter gave his confession that Jesus was the Son of God, he says, upon this rock, speaking of himself, contrary to the Catholic Church, I will build my church. Notice it's I will. It's future. The church was yet future. It didn't come into existence until the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD. So at the moment of our justification as Gentile believers in Jesus, we're united with the Jewish remnant of believers that is in the church, which was led by Paul. In fact, those of you who study the remnant series with me in Marion, Iowa, uh, God always keeps a small a, a remnant of believers in Jesus Christ in every dispensation of the church, uh, every in the church age dispensation, and every and every generation of the church age, and every in its existence. There's never been a time when there's no Jewish remnant. We call those people today Messianic Jews in our country. So we are, Paul talks about us in Ephesians 2, 11 through the end of the chapter, about this, us, Gentile believers, being united with the Jewish believers. He also talks about it in great detail in Romans chapter 11, and a book we did in the past. So, very important what, we, what we're noting here. So because of our being united with Jewish Christians through the baptism of the Spirit as a result of our faith in Jesus at justification, uh, we benefit from the blessings of the new covenant which were given to the Jewish people. So because we're united to the Jewish remnant in the church, now us Gentiles have those blessings flowing to us, the gift of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. So it says in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 2.11 now. Ephesians 2.11, therefore, Paul writes, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, non-Jewish racially, in the flesh, see, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Jewish people, that is performed in the body by human hands, that you were at that time, prior to their justification he's talking about, without the Messiah, Jesus, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, because you didn't have a covenant relationship with them, strangers, there we go, to the covenants of promise, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who used to be far away, meaning they weren't in a covenant relationship with God like the Jews, have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. For He is our peace, the one who made both groups, Jew and Gentile races, into one new humanity. Who I add humanity in there because that's what he's talking about, as you'll see in verse 15. And one who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the law, and the hostility, which when he nullified in his human nature, the flesh, the law of commandments and decrees, the law, Mosaic law, he did this to create in himself one new man, one new humanity out of the two races, thus making peace, making peace between the Jewish race and the Gentile race, and to reconcile them both in one body to God. So there's the reconciliation of the Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross. So the cross, Jesus not only reconciled uh, the Jewish and Gentile races together through uh, faith in him and the baptism of the Spirit, but also uh, through uh, to reconcile them to, to, to God who's holy and us sinners and united to, or uh, made peace with God who is holy through the, the the work of his son on the cross. So then it says in verse 17, and he came, Christ came 2,000 years ago, his first advent, and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, because they were not in a covenant relationship with God. That's why he describes them as being far off. 
and peace to those who were near, the Jewish people who had those covenants, so that through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now, it's kind of interesting. And a lot of dispensations, this dispensationalists have a little problem with this. Uh, some of them, not all of them, I think. Uh, but um, I've really been, God's been trying to, I did a series on the church, but, you know, dispensationalists, one of the things people say, what distinguishes a dispensationalist from someone who's covenant theologian? Well, it, it's, you know, Dr. Ryrie did a book on that. And it's very, I think it's important, but one of the things us dispensationalists do is when it comes to um, Israel, we believe that Israel has a, is going to be regenerated, national regeneration of Israel at the second advent. We also believe that she'll be restored to the land. Okay, that, so covenant. There's some there are covenant theologians, obviously, that believe that there'll be a regeneration of Israel in the future, uh, but they don't believe in a restoration of Israel. So I think one of the things that makes a dispensationalist is they believe that there's going to be the Jewish people are going to be restored to the land with the millennial reign of Christ. Um, the other thing is we believe in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, and when it comes to prophecy, we still adhere to that. A lot of covenant theologians don't do that. And that's, and also, um, what, what we need to understand, though, is uh, there's a distinction between Israel and the church, okay? But it's not as distinct as the dispensationalists would have come across saying, Okay. Yes, it's very important that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. The distinction is this. There's two races in the church, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. With Israel, there is one race, the Jewish race. Now listen to me. The, you can see in this passage, verse 20, the apostles and prophets, their teaching is the foundation of the church. Chief, chief's cornerstone is Christ, right? The Lord said in the Gospels to the apostles, Okay, they're part of the church, are they not? Yes, this passage says that. It's all over the place. Upon this rock I will build my church. And Peter was a part of that church, and so was the other apostles, through faith in Jesus. So they're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, it says. So they're part of Israel, and the apostles were also part of the church. They're a totally unique people. There's nobody like them. And so, so the Jewish remnant, in the church, is also a part of the remnant of Israel. Okay? And yet they're still a part of the church. So that, so there's this thing, so uh, this, in a way, you know, we are connected to, we're not the new Israel, because we're not racially descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul talks about Romans 2. So, and there's some Gentile, I know this is one guy, he used to dress like he was a pastor and he, and he was a Gentile and he, he, he thought he had to become like a Jew. And I said, well, Acts 15. It's like, you know, the whole issue is should the Gentiles practice the law? You know, and they said no. And he, you know, it's like, so this guy's dressing up like a rabbi and carrying around his Hebrew Bible all the time. It's like, it's just false doctrine. They get listening to it. They're not paying attention to details with Scripture. But, so the so this is very important. So the, the church... Uh, we are related to Israel, the remnant of Israel, uh, but we're not, we're different from them racially, we're Gentiles, okay? So there's the church as both Jewish and Gentile believers, the apostles, the, the Jewish remnant is not only part of the church, 
united with the, the Gentile believers in Jesus, but they're also a part of the remnant of Israel because they're biologically descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Us Gentiles are not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's key, because you know, he's, to, you know, because there are other people descended from Abraham, as we pointed out. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got his name changed by God to Israel. Then it says in verse 21, let's keep going. In him, the whole building, in Christ, in him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. You see this phrase? In whom, in him, in verse 21. You see this all in Christ, in Christ Jesus. It's all over the Ephesian epistle. And one way or another, it eludes somewhere, some, somehow, many times, most of the time, I think, what I, in the chapter 1, to justification by faith in, through faith in Jesus and your union identification with Christ. It's all wrapped up into, it's shorthand for Paul for that. Justification by faith in Jesus and then your union identification with Christ. So, we see here that, if you look on my notes, that another major thing, so that's the, that we know the purpose of this letter is, Paul, again, we'll back it up here, the purpose of this letter is right here. The, uh, he was concerned that the Christian community remain united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. Again, indicate this is indicated by the fact that Paul opens the practical application of his teaching in the first three chapters by commanding the recipients of the letter to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4.3. And this would be accomplished, as he says in verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it would be accomplished by living in a manner worthy of their calling and by practicing humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance of one another. And they'd accomplish that through the practice of the command to love one another, which again, he instructs them to do in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. So therefore, the first major overriding theme in the Ephesian epistle uh, is uh, unity, is the first major theme, first overriding theme in this epistle because this is the purpose of the letter, unity, through the practice and the command to love one another. And uh, knowing who you are in Christ is tied to that, of course. So so the first major theme and in the first in the purpose of this letter is unity. And so then we have another theme here, and we're, we're going to finish off our lesson before we look, observe the Lord's Supper by noting this major theme, which I, I mentioned in passing uh, uh, earlier in the lesson. Jesus Christ, he's the, he's the major theme. Uh, Paul begins the epistle by noting that he's an apostle of who? Jesus Christ. And that grace and peace originated not only from him, uh, from the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verse 1, please. Ephesians 1, 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the Lord's mentioned twice in the verse. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and, who else? The Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins the letter by noting that he's an apostle of Jesus and grace and peace, he says, originate not only from the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle that Paul then states that the Father chose the Christian community in Ephesus and, and around the Roman Empire in Christ before the foundation of the world because of their union identification with Christ, which took place 
at the moment of their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. And then Paul teaches that the Father predestined them for adoption as his sons through their union and identification with Christ. That's Ephesians 1.5. He then asserts that they received the Father's grace through his Son, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.6. And not only this, but in verse 7, he says they received redemption through the blood of Jesus or his death on the cross, namely the forgiveness of our trespasses. And the Father did this when he revealed to the church the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he set forth through the person of Jesus. That's verses 9 and 10. And then Paul teaches all that all things will be summed up in Christ in verse 10, namely things in heaven and things on the earth. He's talking about the millennial reign there. The Christian has been claimed, he says in verse 11, as the Father's own possession. Why? Because of their union identification with Jesus. Because they were predestined according to the Father's purpose. And they were marked, he says in verse 11, uh, 13, they were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit because they trusted in Jesus Christ at their justification. And then he also says in Ephesians 1.20, the omnipotence of the Father was manifested when he raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead. And in verses 21 through 23, the Father also put all of creation and every creature under the authority of his Son, who he gave to the church as head over all creation and every creature. And then you get to chapter 2. Paul asserts that the Father raised the church-age believer up with Christ and seated them with him at the moment of their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. And then in verses 8 through 10, Paul teaches that the believer, you and I, the church-age believer, are the Father's workmanship, and we've been created through our union identification with Christ for good works that the Father prepared beforehand so that we would do them. And then, as we read in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, Paul asserts that the Father reconciled Jews and Gentiles through the person and work of His Son. So, as we also just read in this passage, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this spiritual temple. And then you jump over to chapter 3, it continues. Jesus is mentioned everywhere. The Apostle Paul teaches that the Christian community, uh, he teaches them regarding the mystery of Christ, which is that Gentile believers are fellow heirs with Jewish believers, as I mentioned a few moments ago, and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, please. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Gentile believers, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And indeed, you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation, the divine secret was made known to me, as I wrote briefly. <laughs> I got to interject something. I was out with some friends last night to see a show, The Fab Four. It's a Beatle tribute band. I've seen them before. They were really good. And uh, what's great about it is because everybody knows the music and everybody's singing and you get all these different generations there. You know, all these young kids are singing. It's like, oh, you like the Beatles, huh? I got into the Beatles after they broke up. I, you know, I, I wasn't into them really until I got a teenager. But anyways, so we go to this thing and I run into this guy who's supposedly a pastor and he was an older guy and he, and he was talking to my friend and, and then he's telling me, you know, that uh, the church... It's got to get, you know, get its act together so that Christ will come back. And I was like, okay, we're talking, I listened to him, I was like, and he kept on emphasizing, I said, okay, what chapter and verse do you have for that? Because I don't see that in my Bible. 
Jesus is going to come back at the rapture when the Father says it's time to go. And we have nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's not going to speed the, the uh, Christ coming back by the church living to spirit, growing to spiritual maturity. We're supposed to live in light of the imminency of his returning at any moment. That's all over the New Testament. But this guy, I mentioned this because this guy thinks he got some kind of revelation from God. I said, well, where's that in Scripture? He said, well, it's, it, what has to do with the Scripture? I said, well, we already have revelation from God, I said. It's in, the, it's in the New Testament and the Old Testament. You're not getting new revelation from God, neither can. If I said I was, I'm, I'm full of baloney too. I didn't say he was full of baloney. I was trying to be very gentle. It was like, well, you, you know, we, the revelation, you know, we studied this in our inspiration series that we're doing on here at, at DBC, here in Doctrine Bible Church in Huntsville on Wednesday evenings. And, uh, you know, the revelation, Paul got that. He was inspired by God. He got divine revelation through the Spirit. Not us. We get illumination from the Spirit to understand the revelation that the Spirit gave the apostles and the writers of Scripture. And this guy's trying to tell me he's got some revelation from God. He's like, and he didn't have, I confronted him, well, what chapter and verse do you got? Well, okay, I have that. I'll, 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 but he didn't have it. It's like, and then he was like, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm messing up this, you know, the, the Spirit flowing. There's a, the Spirit's not, I said, with all due respect, I'd have to disagree with you because maybe the Spirit is in me is, is saying that you're wrong here. <laughs> I could be wrong, you know, so check me out. I said, well, first of all, you haven't shown me what your supposed revelation came from, God. Where did you get that? And he had no passage, and he knew it. He, he admitted it. I was like, I, I mean, in Massachusetts, we say, you're full of baloney then. <laughs> we, my, we, well, we have another expression, but my mother would say full of baloney because she was sweet and lovable, still is. So uh, she never used that kind of language. But you know what I'm talking about. So it's like, so that Paul got revelation. We, we don't get revelation. We get illumination into understanding and enlightenment as to the revelation that we already receive that's in our New Testament. So the whole idea of us trying to, you know, the church is, it's all, Christ coming back is dependent upon what the church does is full of baloney. It's not in the scriptures, okay? We're to live lightly, imminency of Christ returning, but we're not going to speed that happening. Okay? He's going to come back when he wants to come, when, the, when God wants him to come back. So, then it says in verse 4, Ephesians 3, 4, when reading this, Paul says, you'll be able to understand my insight into this secret or mystery of Christ. Now, this secret or mystery was not disclosed to people in former generations, the Old Testament times, dispensations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Namely, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. So, we see that uh, chapter 3 begins with Paul teaching the Christian community regarding the mystery of Christ, which is that Gentile believers are fellow heirs with Jewish believers, fellow members of the body, and fellow members, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus Christ is a major theme in this letter. Paul teaches in verse 12 of this chapter that the Father's eternal plan was accomplished through His Son. In verses 7-11, through 11, He teaches that, us that. And also, in verse 12, that the believer is confident access to the Father in prayer because of their union and identification with who? Christ Jesus. It says in Ephesians 3, 12, it says, in whom we have bold in Christ, and we have boldness and confident access to God, the Father, in prayer because of Christ's faithfulness or because of uh, um, faith in Christ. Depends on how you want to translate the, the word there, uh, objective or uh, subjective uh, genitive. So in Paul's second prayer, Paul asserts that he prayed to the Father that Christ would dwell in their hearts 
uh, in the hearts of the Christian community in the Roman province of Asia and that they would know experientially Christ's love for them. Look at Ephesians 3.14. Paul says, for this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom the Father, every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person. That Christ, there is the theme of the epistle, major theme, may dwell in your hearts through faith so that because you've been rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to the fullness, all the fullness of God. And then he says in verse 20 and 21, a doxology, brief one, now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul teaches that the church age believer received a spiritual gift because of the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically because of their faith in him. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. The communication gifts were given, he says in this chapter, and specifically in the first 16 verses of the chapter, the gifts of apostleship, of the, um, prophet, and evangelists and pastor teachers. The purpose of those communication gifts was so that the church might grow to maturity spiritually and become more like Christ. And then he goes on to, Paul goes on to remind the recipients of this letter that truth is in Jesus. Again, Jesus is a major, he is a major th- uh, theme in this letter. Believers are to forgive one another, Paul says, just as the Father forgave them through their faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 4.32 and that they would love one another as God through his son loved them. Look at Ephesians 4.32. He says, well, actually look at verse 30. We'll start there in context. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You must put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and evil slanderous talk. Instead, be kind to one another and compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Chapter 5, verse 1, no chapter break in the original. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and in, and live in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So believers, church-age believers, are to remain in fellowship with God through the practice of the command of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ to love one another in order that they might receive their inheritance, Paul says, uh, the inheritance in the kingdom of the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And they were to live godly lives so that Christ might shine on them. That's uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. And also, they were to know what the will of the Lord was by being filled with the Spirit, which would manifest itself and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making music in their hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father for each other in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. And the members of the Christian community are told by Paul in verses 22 of chapter 5 to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this submission, he teases it out a bit, this submission would manifest itself when wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church the Lord himself being the Savior of the body. And as he says in verse 24, just as the church submits to Christ, so also wives 
are to submit to their husbands and everything. And correspondingly, husbands, they were to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's Ephesians 5.25. Like Christ, husbands were obligated to love their wives as their own bodies. And Christ cares for the church. And so husbands, Christian husbands, should care for their wives. Ephesians 5.29. When wives and husbands obey these instructions, they're manifesting the great mystery of Christ's love for the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30-32. May I say to you, you know, if you're in a, in a lousy marriage or whatever, you think you're, not, you're unloved, and there are people who are in tough marriages. Um, if you're, you know, if your wife doesn't love you in your Christian marriage, you know, and she's out of fellowship or whatever, pray for her. Instead of complaining and copying an attitude, you know, maybe you'll be able to lead her to repentance, confession of sin, and obedience to God by your good behavior and treat and loving her like Christ loves the church. Okay, use your practice love with her to woo her back to fellowship with God. And it goes the same vice, vice, vice versa. If, you're, if your husband, you know, is, is out of fellowship with God a lot of times and he's, he doesn't, he's not engaged, well, pray for him, you know, and do the same thing. Practice the command to love one another with him. Be patient and tall and forgiving him of him as God in Christ has been patient and tall and forgiving of you, right? We just read that. That's application, people. Apply it in your marriage. And I know it's hard, but you know what? I get it, and people are hard. And those people, you should thank them because I tell you the story. My father, I had to live with him for three years. My father is like a slob. <laughs> Great cook, though. And he's a pain in the rear. And he's 84 years old. And he's not going to change anytime soon. So I was trying to help him with my mother, which is, oh, gosh. And hey, he was a, te- he was a test of my love because I wanted to crack him one. <laughs> but I had to remind myself, women, honor your father and mother. Okay, and I would confess that if I got an attitude toward him or to snap back at him or said something that was not right, right, which was said. So I had he was I had to look at him differently. I said, okay, God's got me. I'm back here for a reason because He's trying to advance me to become more like His Son Jesus Christ. So my father is the best person in my life right now, even because and he probably went, for the, for the simple reason spiritually He's forcing me to practice the command to love one another. I have to pay, be patient with him, forgiving of him. Okay, so one of the things you, you, you when you when you with this command to love one another is, when it comes to family members, and I get it because I just I'm explaining to you my my relationship with my father, but we get familiar with each other. Husbands and wives do this all the time. Stop looking at your husband and wife as somebody that you've known all your life. Try to think about them as they, how do you treat people outside your family. We treat them differently than people inside the family. We're more familiar with the people inside our family because we know all their faults and their weaknesses and they know yours. So so think about your husband or your wife or your father or your mother, whatever your kids, okay, as not in the family. Think of them outside of the family. How would you treat them if they were not your father, your mother, your husband, or your wife, your kids, your father, or mother? Right? Don't think about that. Just, Use your mind. Think about these things because the devil's just trying to get you to not do this stuff and then you're going to be miserable and then, you know, if you don't practice the command to love one another, you're going to be disciplined by God. So you don't want that, right? So do the best you can. Ask God to help you to think of these things and not get so emotional because we all get emotional both male and female and we men show it in different ways. Uh, we, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm not saying this happens all the time. Ladies cry and guys blow their tops. I've, guys cry too, you know, and the ladies can blow their top too. I know that. So we all get emotional. 
All right, let's wrap this up before we go to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 6 of Ephesians begins with Paul commanding the children in the Christian community to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right, Ephesians 6, 1. And then in verse 4, he says, fathers were not to provoke their children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Then in verse 5, he instructs the slaves of the Christian community to obey their human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of their heart as to Christ. Notice, as to Christ. The wives are supposed to love their husbands as, as unto the Lord. You get that? So, and, and husbands, uh, slaves would obey their masters as unto the Lord. Christian labor. You're a Christian, obey your boss as unto the Lord. That doesn't mean you have to like them or even respect, respect them, but do it for the Lord. They're in a position of authority, whether they're your husband or your parents or whatever, and you're a boss. You, treat, you do your job as under the Lord. You do your marriage under the Lord because he's the one at the, ultimately you're trying to please. He's watching you and I in the situation that we're in that he put us in to see if we're going to do it as if it was for him, which in reality it is. So keep these in mind, people. We'll be, that's, why, hey, that's why I can't wait to do this epistle. <laughs> A lot of good stuff. So we see that the, Paul teaches that the slaves would do their work as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And then in verse 8 of chapter 6, Paul says that, that the slaves would obey their masters with enthusiasm, as though serving the Lord, which in reality they were, and not to do it for people, because they know that each person, whether slave or free, if they do something good, will be rewarded by the Lord. And so slave masters, Paul instructs slave masters of the Christian community to treat their slaves the same way, giving up the use of threats because they know that both they and their Christian slaves have the same master in heaven, namely the Lord Jesus. He, again, is the major theme of this letter and our union identification with him. And the final major section of the Ephesian epistle addresses the Christian community's relationship to Satan and his kingdom. This community was to strengthen themselves in the Lord. And how do you do that? By appropriating by faith their union identification with Christ, as I've mentioned many times in the past and today. There's different aspects of this union and identification are described with a military metaphor. And that's the full armor of God, namely. And that's in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. And then in closing, in the closing of the letter, Paul asserts in verse 23 of chapter 6 that he interceded in prayer for the recipients of this letter that they would experience peace in their souls, and when interacting with each other by practicing the, the command to love one another with each other through faith in his apostolic teaching and which peace originates from not only the Father, but also again who, from who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Then lastly in verse 24, Paul interceded in prayer, he says, for the recipients of this letter to the Father. And, he, and this is what he prayed, that the grace of God, which was manifested through the Spirit-inspired contents of this letter, would be experienced by the recipients of this letter with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So the first, the, pur the purpose of this letter is that the recipients of this letter who are Gentile Christians in the Roman province of Asia, that they would know who they are in Christ, crucified, died, buried, raised, and see with Christ, and stay united with each other experientially with emphasis upon the Jewish Christian community that they would interact with at times. And uh, so, and they would be able to do that to, to practice the command to love one another. 
So that's unity is the, is the first major theme and, and is the purpose, really, of the letter. Unity experientially. There's unity, as I said before, positionally through the baptism of the Spirit and in a perfective sense when we're in a resurrection body. But in the meantime, for that to be experienced, this unity, whether it's interaction between the Jewish Christian community with the Gentile Christian community or just the Christian community, Gentile Christian community with itself or the Jewish community with itself, it's through the practice of the command to love one another. That is the bond of unity, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, was verses 12, uh, 12 through uh, 14. Well, let's uh, segue now into the communion service, the communion uh, uh, table, and I want you to turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and uh, what I'll do is I'll get my hook, uh, strap my guitar back on, and then I'll sing us a song, and then we'll observe uh, the communion elements after about a minute or two of, uh, of silence and, and meditation. So let us uh, let me uh, just put this on mute and I'll get my, uh, my guitar back on. I'll sing you the song. Alrighty, this is called Love Song to My Savior.
cross as one my heart thank you Lord you're my Savior nothing can tell us apart oh I I'm so in love with you, Jesus. I think of you all my day. Yes, I'm so in love with you, Jesus. For wiping my sins all away. Yes, I'm so in love with you, Jesus. I think of you all night and day. Yes, I think of you all night and day. Yes, I think of you all. Monday. All right, I'll be right back. Let me hang up the guitar. I'll be right back with you. All right, if you could turn to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. So uh, we're going to observe the communion elements at this time. But before we do, I'd like to take about a minute or two uh, to um, have a moment of silence, a, a little meditation, reflect upon the personal work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we'll be bringing into remembrance today through the, the, the elements that are in front of us. So let's uh, we'll take about a minute or two to do this, uh, to have some uh, re quiet reflection, meditation, before we observe the communion elements. So, with that in mind, let us pray.
Okay, we're bringing into remembrance the Lord's uh, personal work of Jesus Christ on the cross as we uh, we do the first Sunday, uh, Saturday of each month. Uh, t tomorrow I will be doing it with uh, Doctrinal Bible Church here in Huntsville. And uh, so uh, I have you at uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I have uh, the elements in front of me. The bread, as we pointed many, out many times in the past, represents the person of Jesus Christ and his, uh, his impeccability. He's sinless without sin. And uh, he had to be sinless. The sacrifice for sin had to be sinless because God is holy and perfect. And he demands perfection and his son is perfection because he shares the same nature uh, as his son. So the, 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 the juice and, uh, and the wine and the Lord's Supper, the Lord did it with his disciples, represents the blood of Christ. And, and that's a representative analogy uh, for uh, his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross. Uh, the spiritual death is when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by his father. He was experiencing the wrath of God and then in that sense. And then he was also experiencing the wrath of God through the physical torture uh, of the uh, two scourgings and the crucifixion and physical death. So and all the ridicule and uh, the things that he was uh, abused that was being hurled at him. He was suffering the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. He lived the life of perfect obedience to the Father, kept the law perfectly because we couldn't do it. So he's our substitute. So the, the, uh, the, the wine in the, in the Lord's Supper, it speaks of, uh, that's a representative analogy. The blood of Christ is a representative analogy associating the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament with the, the spiritual and physical deaths of Christ on the cross. John the Baptist said, Behold the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, so the blood is not speaking of his literal blood. It's speaking of his death in particular, uh, his spiritual and physical death. Remember, Adam died and Eve, they died spiritually first. They, they separated from the Father. They'd lost their fellowship with the Father through the act of that sin in the garden. And then it resulted in their physical death night over 900 years later. Same pattern happens with every person in the human race. So God sent his son to, to stop that pattern of uh, death and destruction in the human race. So... Um, Therefore, we're going to, if you look at Paul, what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of the, of the, of the person, uh, person of Christ represented in the bread, let us bring in remembrance our Lord as we eat the bread. And then Paul writes in verse 25, in the same way, the Lord also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. We mentioned that new covenant today. In my blood, it's based on his blood, his death on the cross, his, his suffering the wrath of God with his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross. He says, do this. It's a command. Every time you drink it, in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of our Lord's uh, substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross, which in other words, in in remembrance of him suffering the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever, let us partake of the cup. And then Paul says in verse 26, for every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the gift of your son and his great sacrifice suffering your wrath in our place 
and uh, so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God, your wrath in the lake of fire forever. And we just thank you for the fact that he lived the life of perfect obedience to your law that we couldn't. And uh, we just want to, I just want to pray, Father, that bring in remembrance the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, would prompt us to be more obedient, to keep short accounts with you, confess our sins, and be more and more obedient. And we get our motivation to obey you and your commands and prohibitions as you've taught us by looking back at how you treated us when we were your enemies and dead in our sins and transgressions. You sacrificed your son when we were we are enemies and you raised us up and seated us with your son, Jesus Christ, through the baptism of the Spirit and our justification when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. So I pray, Father, that uh, this love that you've demonstrated to us now that we're recipients of this love and have the capacity with this to have this love because we have the Spirit now to be able to obey this command. I pray that uh, this love that you demonstrated to us would be reflected in our own lives uh, with each other, whether it's in our families, our church, in our church, uh, with our different Christians, non-Christian, uh, husbands, wives, children, parents, uh, family members. We, we, we interact with each other practicing this command and being patient and tolerant and forgiving of one another because you did that way. You've been that way uh, to us in the past and that way now and, and in the future, Father. So, Father, we pray that also this lesson be a blessing to people and help us understand this Ephesian epistle. I pray you would bless us in this study of this great epistle that you gave us through your servant, Paul. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And if you don't mind, I'm going to sing us another song to finish off. I like to go out with a song sometimes, but uh, let's. Uh, I'm going to do a song called Unconditional Love. And uh, I love this song. I wrote it a long time ago, so um, I don't have... I, I used I chat, play playing a little differently than I used to in the past because I like to change it up sometime, but same song. But uh, so it's called Unconditional Love. So let me get strap on my guitar and I'll sing it for you. Alrighty, I think I'm ready to roll. <laughs> Selfishness, anger, lies, and bitterness, you still love me. Oh, I so deserve your rejection. 
Thank you. I'll see you Tuesday, Lord willing, 11 a.m. Central Time.